Screening for breast cancer in women who are not at increased risk may help with early identification and more effective treatment, but it can also lead to false positives or overdiagnosis of otherwise harmless cancers. The last Canadian Task Force on Preventive Healthcare Guideline was published in 2011, and now the task force has reviewed the latest evidence and published an updated guideline. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Interim Editor-in-Chief for the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and today I'm speaking with one of the members of the task force about the new breast cancer screening guideline published in CMAJ. Dr. Ainsley Moore is a family physician and associate clinical professor at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Dr. Moore is joining us today on behalf of the Canadian Task Force Working Group. I've reached her in Hamilton. Welcome, Ainsley. Hi, Diane. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation, and thank you for the opportunity to participate. Why is there a need for this guideline at this time? Yeah, so there's three main factors that are driving this guideline at the moment, and one is just the general importance related to breast cancer in Canada. It's, it is representing the second leading cause of cancer death for Canadian women, so it's an important topic, certainly for Canadians. And the other drivers here as the task force saw a need to revisit the evidence um, supporting breast cancer screening. So as you mentioned, this is an update from the 2011 guideline. The task force also identified um, the growing body of, of literature and evidence on women's values and preferences uh, related to breast cancer screening. And so the task force saw a need to uh, deliberately and systematically evaluate that evidence and incorporate it into the current recommendation. So those are the three drivers underlying this recommendation. Importance, need to look at the evidence again and to incorporate how women feel and um, how they value the, um, the benefits and harms of breast cancer screening. Now, we're going to be talking uh, a lot more later on in this conversation about patient preference, but I wondered if we could talk a little bit about what the scope of the guideline is. Who's it for and who is it not for? Sure. So the guideline... Um, it's intended to support women and their healthcare practitioners. Um, specifically, the scope of this guideline is for primary care practitioners who deliver the bulk of uh, preventive care in Canada. And it's also specifically for women um, who are between the ages of 40 to 74, and specifically those women who are not at increased risk for breast cancer. Now, can you remind us then, what factors determine if a woman is at higher or lower risk for breast cancer? Sure. So the characteristics that are identified are used to define women at increased risk that are commonly used across um, many agencies and organizations include whether a woman has a, a personal history of breast cancer or a family history of breast cancer. And then um, another risk factor would be women who are carriers of the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene mutation, as well as any woman who has a first-degree relative, of course, who has the same uh, BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene mutation. And then the other characteristics that are not maybe as commonly aware of for primary care clinicians is the risk factor associated with chest radiation therapy, and that's um, before 30 years of age, or for women who've had chest radiation therapy in the past um, eight years. So that might be somebody, you know, who's had cancer perhaps in the past requiring radiation. Right, right. So someone who's maybe had um, lymphoma in their childhood or youth could, could have experienced chest radiation or other types of cancers. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Now, I just want to talk about one other uh, risk factor. 
can you talk a little bit about breast density? Sure. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty about breast density emerging as an independent risk factor for breast cancer mortality. There's some uncertainty about the, an approach to definition, so actually what percent of fibroglandular tissue really represents um, dense breasts. There's also there's a fair bit of uncertainty about how to classify it and reliability about classifying categories of um, breast density. The other issue, the other challenge is how to manage um, breast density. Currently, there's no trial-level data that informs on outcomes that women would need to make a decision about screening. So those are those really important outcomes about impact on uh, breast cancer mortality uh, reduction, as well as um, impact on the harms, like the overdiagnosis harms, the false positive harms. So currently, there's no trial-level data that informs on those types of outcomes to um, guide us in terms of if breast density is indeed a risk factor, how to manage it. So it's just, it's evolving, and um, currently there's just not a lot of uh, data to confirm um, how to define, how to categorize, and then uh, how to manage. The other factor regarding uncertainty with respect to breast density relates to classification or categorization of breast density. There was a U.S. Preventive Services review that identified a single radiologist will reclassify a woman's breast density category one in five times differently. And then if you look across radiologists, one in three radiologists will reclassify breast density. So there is some um, challenges around reliability in terms of classifying uh, breast density. So before we go on to talk about the, the recommendations in the guideline, can you tell us a little bit about how the guideline was developed? Sure. So this guideline undertook two key questions. The first question was on uh, what is the effectiveness of breast cancer screening? So what is what are the harms and benefits of breast cancer screening? And that was um, a rigorous systematic review that looked at that looked for randomized trial level data that specifically informed on those patient important outcomes, the, the potential to impact mortality associated with screening, and also the risks of, of harm. Um, the task force in developing the, the recommendations for supporting this key question all follows the great approach, and that's the well-recognized um, strategies for not only appraising the quality or certainty of evidence, but also it's it's the, the guideline for or the approach to rating the strength of the, of the recommendation. And aligned with the great processes, Randomized trial data is prioritized over other data when available as being less susceptible to bias, and also GRADE um, prioritizes outcomes that are uh, critical or important to patients. And so that's, those are the guiding factors um, that led to the development of recommendations related to the question on um, effectiveness of breast cancer screening. So you were mainly looking at RCT data then? That's right. That was defined at the outset of the systematic review to prioritize that data over other data. The the other just want to mention that other systematic review that was looked at specifically on values and preferences looked at um, how when women are informed of, of values and preferences, well informed, how they um, prioritize benefits and harms and how that actually translates out into their decisions about whether to be screened or not. 
Now, the recommendations in the guideline are divided into age groups and types of screening. Can you take us through the recommendations and tell us about the, the strength of each recommendation and, and the type of evidence that underpins it? So, well, let's go back to what the evidence reviews found. So, the evidence on uh, breast cancer screening effectiveness continues to show um, a close balance between that the benefits and harms. So that close margin was identified again. And as well, it appears that that balance is still less favorable for younger women. So for women between 40 to 49 years of age. Um, additionally, that systematic review on values and preferences found that women in this, this same age group, 40 to 49 years, when they are um, well informed of the harms and benefits for their age group, that a substantial portion would choose not to undergo screening, but some still would choose to undergo screening. And therefore, uh, the task force provides a conditional recommendation against breast cancer screening with mammography in women 40 to 49 years old. Um, it's conditional because it's conditional on how an individual woman weighs those, those benefits and harms of screening. And some women may have an interest in screening. Some women in this age group may find that the, the potential harms are not a barrier and that the, the benefits outweigh any harms for her. And so the task force is advising women who have an interest in screening or who have questions in screening um, in this age group to engage their uh, practitioners, their healthcare practitioners in, uh, in, in a conversation, in a shared decision-making conversation. Um, yeah, the task force is also advising clinicians to be open to women in this age group who come forward to them with questions or concerns or interest in breast cancer screening. Um, Ainsley, before we move on to the other categories, you used the term conditional. Now, the task force used to use the term week before. Can you explain for the listeners the difference between or how the conditional and week connect? Sure. So they're, they reflect the same concepts or constructs it's it's just a, a term change and the term is consistent with directions with grade but the term is it's more specific it's more deliberate and it's more apparent than saying weak what's tended to be interpreted from previous task force recommendations is the direction of the recommendation for or against and then the weak part of the statement would tend to be lost and not interpreted or, or processed but when you say a recommendation is conditional, it's, it begs the question, well, condition on upon what? And so that allows an opportunity to elaborate on what the conditions are. So that was some of the rationale um, that led to these, this change in terms that the task force has adopted. So a, con a recommendation can be conditional, conditional on a range of issues. It, in this case, it's conditional on women's values and preferences. Um, it can be conditional on uncertainty or, or low certainty about evidence, so conditional upon better evidence coming. Um, or it could be a strong recommendation as before. Uh, that, that term hasn't changed. Thanks for that explanation. So uh, we've talked about uh, women between 40 and 49. What about the, the next age group up? Yeah, so the um, the evidence update shows a slightly favorable balance in terms of benefits relative to harms for women 50 to 74 years of age. 
And so the systematic review on values and preferences found that a large proportion of women in this age group would choose to be to undergo screening based on when they are informed of the harms and benefits. But there's still some women who would appropriately choose not to undergo screening between the ages of 50 to 74. And so uh, the task force provides a conditional recommendation in favor of screening women 50 to 74 years of age. And the condition, again, here is on um, how the individual woman prioritizes the harms and benefits for, for her age group, for the 50 to 74-year-old age group. Now, what about older women? So there's an evidence gap. Um, there's There was no um, trial-level data to inform past uh, age 74 years old. So the task force uh, didn't make recommendations beyond that. So that certainly sounds like an area where we need to have a whole lot more research because that, that yeah. is a, it is a question when we have women in our offices who have been screened their whole lives and then suddenly, you know, magically they're not supposed to be screened anymore and they don't understand why. Well, again, you're, you're looking at a shared decision-making process. It would be um, generating informed consent based on very limited information and trying to understand how that person would value that or not, and then making decisions based on that. We've talked earlier about, um, we use the term overdiagnosis. I think most of our readers understand false positives. Can you explain a little bit more about what overdiagnosis is in, in breast cancer and, and, and why it's important to minimize that? So this is a really important concept to understand. There's, there is a fair bit of misunderstanding around it. Um, and it's it's critical to to get it because it's necessary to obtain informed consent. So um, not all cancers progress. So so some cancers, some breast cancers are indolent. They would not cause a symptom. They wouldn't cause a palpable lump. They wouldn't be detected. They wouldn't generate harms, and they certainly wouldn't cause death in a woman's lifetime. But the problem is they're detected. So they're detected by screening. They're not detected by any other means, so it is associated only with screening. And the challenge is that at the time of diagnosis, physicians can't tell which of these cancers would progress and which would not. And so the tendency is just to treat them all. And we know that all breast cancer treatment carries harms. We're talking about treatments like radiation therapy, chemotherapy, um, surgery. And so what overdiagnosis represents is truly harm unique to screening because these, these cancers wouldn't be detected any other way, but they uh, expose women to unnecessary treatment and the, the consequences or the harms associated with those treatments. And so that's what overdiagnosis is, and it's, it's different from, um, as you say, from false positives. Now, now, we've been talking uh, mostly about screening with mammography, but the task force did make some recommendations about other screening modalities, magnetic resonance imaging, tomosynthesis, ultrasound, even what we used to tell people do to practice breast self-examination. So c could you just comment a little bit on that recommendation? Sure. So the task force didn't identify any evidence to recommend other screening modalities other than mammography. So tomosynthesis, MRI, ultrasound, or clinical breast uh, examinations. So if we don't know what the potential benefits and harms are for different screening strategies, women don't know what they can expect in terms of 
what the benefits are, what the harms are, and how to weigh those. So the task force couldn't make recommendations in favor of of those strategies, basically because there was no trial-level data that informed on outcomes to allow um, informed consent. The, the recommendation on breast self-examination is conditional. And, you know, that's conditional, again, on what a woman prefers. Where and how does patient preference fit into this guideline? So patient preferences um, are embedded in the recommendations. There, It was a key question underlying these, this guideline. Um, what are the values and preferences of women regarding harms and benefits of screening? So it's rolled into the recommendations, but also the task force provides the tools to support um, shared decision-making and to support identifying women's values and preferences. So on the website at the time of guideline publication, there will be um, the, the infographic tools that inform on the numbers, the harms and benefits, but there will also be um, decision aids to support um, shared decision-making to allow values and preference-based decisions on breast cancer screening. And so these are the kind of tools that clinicians can use to to facilitate these discussions. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So what are the most important things that you want primary care practitioners to take away from this guideline? If there are a few things that you'd like them to remember, what would they be? So I think the important things to take away, of course, is screening is a choice. And that often when we're talking about preventive health care screening, that that margin is is really close between benefits and harms. So it's a potential to do some good, and there's a potential for for real harms. And so when it comes to our roles as clinicians, we have two steps to go through. One is to prioritize informed consent, so communicating not just the numbers, the harms, the benefits, but also those key concepts, the underlying concepts like overdiagnosis, which isn't so intuitive and it's not so apparent to understand. But the next priority, of course, is to draw out those values and preferences that that individual has related to the harms and benefits and screening. And that's what the key message that underlies um, this guideline on breast cancer screening. It's one of shared decision-making between women and their healthcare practitioners. So I'd encourage uh, listeners to go to the task force website to take a look at some of these tools that can really help them in these important conversations. So Ainsley, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about this important guideline. Thank you, Diane. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. I've been speaking with Dr. Ainsley Moore, family physician and associate clinical professor at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. To read the Canadian Task Force Guideline, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. While you're there, you can browse and listen to our many past episodes and you can leave us a rating. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Interim Editor-in-Chief for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.